when yields go lower, they can borrow against it and then financially engineer the middle class out of pretty much all ownership. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm your co-host, Mike Ippolito, and I'm joined, as always, by my trustworthy co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. What's going on, buddy? I like that one. Yeah. I like trustworthy. Me too. Yeah. I, think it, I think it suits you nicely. Yeah. I think it suits you nicely. Yeah. yeah. Been a, it's been a long week, hasn't it? I think we're all ready to go into the weekend. My God. Yeah. It's really odd. Yeah. I feel like everyone feels that way too. I think everyone feels like that way. Like a bunch of different people in my life yeah. are like, I don't know what it's been about this week, but good Lord, ready to ride into yeah. the weekend, riding hard. Um, but, but, but we've got some big stories this week. It's actually been a pretty eventful week. Uh, some good ones to talk about. So we're going to be covering uh, the CPI jump. So 5%. Uh, year over year in the month of May. That's the strongest reading uh, since 2008. If you're looking at core CPI, that is the strongest uh, uh, month over month increase in uh, three decades since 1992. So it's pretty interesting. Um, we're going to be talking about BlackRock and other large asset managers snapping up single family homes, which is like the perfect story, I feel like, for the, the zeitgeist here. Um, Amazon could be forced to split into two companies as antitrust investigations into big tech heats up. That just broke this morning. That is wild. Big, big story there. Uh, and then lastly, this is almost old news at this point, but El Salvador uh, has become the first country to legally or to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, um, which is a big deal for sure. So lots to unpack here. Let's just dive right into his first story. As always, I'll kind of set the scene, let you jump in. So basically, CPI data, which gets released on a monthly basis, uh, just came out for the month of May. That represents a basket including food, energy, groceries, housing costs, and sales across the spectrum of goods. So that rose 5% um, in the month of May, and that's compared to 12 months ago, May uh, of 2020. Um, so that's more than what economists were predicting, uh, which was 4.7%. Uh, the big number to pay attention to here as well is core inflation. So core inflation excludes volatile uh, food and energy prices. Uh, and that rose 3.8%, which was the sharpest rise in nearly three decades. So that's where you're getting that number. Uh, folks are kind of pointing the finger at used car and truck prices. Uh, that was like a very, very big factor in terms of what uh, generated so much um, movement on this print, basically. Uh, now, the thing to call out here is that one of the reasons why we're seeing such a large change is base effects, quote unquote. So if you think back to May of last year, prices were super depressed because we were just moving into COVID times. So economists always expected a uh, very high uh, kind of May print. Um, but even so, it, it still kind of blew past their expectations. And in a way, this was surprising, but really we're probably going to need to wait till next month to see how lasting these effects are. What's your impact on this, man? Like, like or what's your, what's your take? Like, what is the impact of this? Like, how are you kind of thinking about it? I think this was a patent by the rumor, sell the news. Like everyone was anticipating the big number. Uh, people were, including me, and I got this one wrong. Um, I, people were very short treasury yields into this print, expecting a blowout inflation number. And now those shorts are getting stomped out. If you look at the short interest in the, the TLT, which is the 20-year treasury ETF, it was at like highs since 2014. So we're seeing people kind of cover their their shorts, the bond vigilantes who are expecting yields to rise due mm -hmm. to inflation. So 
that that's a temporary thing. I think longer term, we're still going to see the inflation, the the longer term inflation, even though we are kind of seeing the transitory inflation people winning at this point. They're winning the battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I did see there there are some things to be fair, like we've talked about before, you know, even like with my supply chain background, I mean, you know, vendor or like suppliers kind of deep in the value chain, raising prices to other folks in the value chain, like that's not really that consequential. It's like when the price hikes start to happen to the consumer, that's when it's actually gets pretty interesting. Like you're starting to kind of see that anecdotally happen. Like, uh, I don't know if you just saw Chipotle raise their prices by 4% and I don't know. I think, you know, one of the things that's like really hard to uh, quantify about inflation is there's this psychological component. And the most simple way of describing that is people just get used to these constant price hikes. And when people start to get used to, well, prices just go up, prices just go up. Like that ends up being this really like self-fulfilling prophecy uh, type situation. So I guess the big question is, is that going to happen? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, there was a good op-ed in the New York Times where it showed the U.S. working age population is no longer growing. But at the same time, you have job openings uh, at pretty much like high. So so you have a shrinking employment base and job openings very high. That means you have to pay up for, for workers. And I think that's the wage that's the wage thing that everyone's waiting for. And it's kind of in the back. And, and I think businesses are so reluctant to really pay up for labor because they didn't have to do that for 10, 10 years, really, right? There was a, the glut of supply and, and boomers still wanted to work and they weren't dropping out of the workforce. And now it's the opposite. Um, so I think those are just like the larger, bigger uh, trends that we'll see emerge, but this is just a you know temporary hiccup on the, the market reaction on on the CPI data. Totally, yeah, totally. There's also you know no one ever distinguishes in between kind of the the services economy and the kind of production economy, so to speak. Like when people talk about like U.S. exports and trade deficits and stuff like that, there's been a widening deficit in terms of goods, but actually we are a net exporter in terms of services, which no one ever really points out. Uh, so it, it kind of stands to. You know, one of the things that's been missing from inflation is just uh, wage growth and, and wage kind of pressure. Um, and you, you actually might be kind of starting to see that in the services parts of the economy and in, in sectors like tech and stuff like that. Uh, but it's kind of hard, you know, it's hard to uh, draw that sort of distinction and, and what that really means. But that is something I think to keep an eye on. Like a lot of that nuance often gets lost in this discussion. Absolutely. And you, you had a great um, podcast with Javi Costa speaking of sort of the these inflationary p pressures at certain pandemic points what about that uh can you teach me a little bit about that <laughs> i sure can tyler i sure can i mean toby's really the guy that you want to ask about this but uh you know he uh he had this great point which was there's actually a, uh, a historical precedent for inflation coming out of pandemic scenarios so if you look at uh the 1919 um spanish flu epidemic there was actually, I mean, a lot, honestly, a lot of the stuff that you're seeing now, you were seeing then too, because big swaths of the economy kind of shut down or were slowed. So you saw this huge, um, there was a, a demand decrease, but there was a huge 
uh, offloading of supply, basically, in the con in the economy and production was really shut down. So when the economy kind of came back to life uh, the next year in 1920, you saw colossal inflation. And there are even stories about like grocery stores hoarding goods uh, so that they could sell it for higher prices later on. And the government had to step in and make those practices illegal and all that kind of stuff. But it was nuts. And the, the CPI print that they did in, in 1920 was 20 percent, which was insane. Um, and that actually that caused a peak to trough dip in the Dow Jones at that point of 47 percent. And that was over 1920 to 1921. Um, so not good uh, overall. Um, it's hard, you know, history uh, often rhymes, uh, but it doesn't repeat or whatever, you know, whatever the saying is, but certainly looks uh, like it's rhyming at least. Um, so I guess we'll see. Yeah. What's funny is we haven't seen the the equity markets really roll over or any of the debt markets have any dysfunction because of the inflation. And maybe it's because mm -hmm. the government is so pervasive in, in the pricing of that stuff um, that we haven't really seen the the, the effects on, on valuations. Um, but there, there is under the hood, I was taking a look at like the cap, how the capital is moving. And if you look at like the TLT to HYG ratio, which is, you know, the treasury, the treasury ETF versus the high yield ETF, high yield bonds have been massively outperforming, uh, treasuries as investors, you know, over the past year were seeking higher returns. And just this past like two weeks, treasury yields, treasury bonds have been outperforming high yield, meaning like investors are getting a little bit more conservative on the ground floor um, hmm. in fixed income. So we'll see if that follows through with like lower growth rates in the equity market and a, and a repricing in the valuations. Uh, but so far we, you know, the, the S&P hit new highs. You know, it's like, who cares? Yeah. Yeah, who cares? And we talked about this as well, like where we might be entering like a, a bad news is good news type environment, right? Because if the primary driver of, of equities is just stimulus and, uh, you know, the Fed intervening, then <laughs> it's almost like you're kind of hoping for bad news in a weird way. Yep. So, yeah, that happened yeah. back in um, the taper tantrum way back when was it 2015, 2014? So, yeah, somewhere around then. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move into this next one. When I saw this story, I was like, ooh, my man's Tyler is going to hit him because I was just like, this is perfect for you. Um, so basically, uh, pensions and large asset managers, BlackRock in particular, which we'll get into, has been taking a lot of flack. They are buying single family homes. And the key thing is that they're actually buying it way above market value. So the Wall Street Journal uh, produces great story on this. Uh, and basically, they call that as like yield chasing investors are snapping up these single family homes. And they're competing with ordinary Americans and driving up prices. Um, so, you know, there have been purchases of subdivisions of homes, specifically in uh, Houston, which seems to be a hotbed for this, at 30 to 50 percent above market prices. Um, the Wall Street Journal in particular, they called out this purchase of 124 homes. Uh, this was actually by online platform Fundrise for 34 million. Uh, and, yeah, it was like 30, 30 percent above market rate. Uh, and apparently in Houston, 24% uh, of homes are actually now kind of deemed investments and you don't have full-time people just living in them. Um, so this guy, uh, John Burns, actually summed this up really nicely. You now have permanent capital that's competing with a young couple trying to buy a house, uh, right? Uh, and, you know, the, the firm that he works at estimates that um, in many different markets in the nation, uh, roughly one in every five houses is bought by someone who never even moves in. 
It's insane. So uh, last thing I'll say is his firm expects uh, home prices to climb by 12% this year. And that was on top of last year's 11% rise. Uh, and the last time that you saw house prices move up that quickly was in 2004, 2005. So what do you think about all this? I mean, it's just terrible. It's I get if you buy stocks as BlackRock and and I get that and you can become a monster organization. But like this is a real like moral value thing for, I guess, Americans in general. There's like everything is owned by mm-hmm. institutions. At what point is like you moving into a home and they're starting to sell you ads for like living in your own home because you don't own anything at that point. It's like we're getting into some weird dystopian stuff. And that's really a a side effect of too big to fail is like the bigger your balance sheet is, the more you can leverage up and the more you stifle real market forces with debt, the more these, the big pension, the big giant firms win because like they, they have a bigger balance sheet. They have more equity when, when yields go lower, they can borrow against it and then buy more and then, financially engineer the middle class out of pretty much all ownership and they do it in the name of cheap prices and we'll go which is you know maybe it becomes cheaper and they don't have to do maintenance and you know the the average person who moves into a a house for these uh giant institutions they the labor and the the fixing up of your own home like that's not their liability anymore and they they hide behind these like these virtues that's like they're helping you and like they never see the side effect which is just like slowly you're just like really tearing apart the social fabric of of the next generation and like what it means to own something and and kind of like hang your hat on like your hard work and and what providing for for a family and stuff we're seeing like birth rate rates drop. And I think this is really one of the like tangential drivers of that is all these giant institutions have an insatiable appetite to grow all incentivized by pensions, right? Like uh, the unfunded pensions needing yield. So it's kind of like this mandate thing where, Hey, we need more yield. Oh, let's go to this market and untap some more yield here. And what you're really doing is just, it's like yeah. a bubble yeah. constrictor, just like squeezing every little drop out of like parts of the economy that aren't perfectly efficient it, it, at the expense of innovation. Like that money should not be buying homes. That money should be going to like venture capital funds and trying to create something yeah. new. It really doesn't provide uh, – it's financial engineering. It doesn't provide any good for future generations. And not only that, but it's probably going to cause a bigger crisis. Think about this. If inflation of like lumber and all these goods keeps up, then what they're – BlackRock's going to own all these houses. Who's going to pay their rent if the, if BlackRock owns all the houses, it's kind of like this whole student loan thing where maybe like everybody's just like, you know what? I'm just not going to pay rent. I'm not going to pay my student loans. What are you going to do about it? You can't throw us all out. It turns into like crazy dystopian stuff when the ownership is that tight. Yeah. So very interesting story. What are your thoughts I'm with here? you, man. 
it's a really interesting story. I've been trying to like when I first saw this, I just had this really deep emotional reaction to it, and I'm trying to pinpoint what it is that uh, you know makes people have such a, a stark reaction to this. And, and what I think I am coming back to is you're starting to see this across like meme stocks and stuff. Like, why is GameStop? Why is AMC? Why are they the stocks that are pumping right now? Because there's this like nostalgia, right? There's almost this like callback to a time time when things felt different and like they made more sense, et cetera. And I think, you know, one of the problems with, and like when you think about the American brand, like you kind of, your mind like drifts back to, you know, like the house in the burbs with like the two cars and you can go on vacation and like home ownership has always been like a core tenant to American life and prosperity. And something like 80% of people's personal net worth are usually tied up in their primary residence or their home, right? So. The fact that BlackRock is now directly competing against people, it's just like such a visible, it's just such a visible manifestation of the inequality and the just distortion of stuff that's going on. I think that's what it is for me. It's just like so freaking in your face about it. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's, that's the big problem. And you're absolutely right. Like this isn't productive capital. This isn't serving society. In, in any way, shape, or form, I kind of have to hand it to them. Though it's, I think it's a brilliant move because what's like the one most structurally important market that the Fed is never going to let fail again? It's the housing market. Everyone's still scarred from 08, 09, the last time there was a big housing bust. So, like, what's the one market you like really cannot allow the bottom to fall out of? Single-family housing. I don't know. That's got to be the most important market in, in America today. So maybe behind Treasuries. So. I don't know. I think it's like a good quote unquote business move, but I think, yeah, it's just, I agree. It's like a distortion in the force. Yeah. This, this really bothers me too. And I, I completely agree. And I think the, the one thing that bothers me the most is I think you mentioned it, which is if housing ends up falling, you're going to have to bail out BlackRock again. It's like the right. asset that, you know, everyone has their, their equity in and the majority of their net worth. And, if their net worth kind of like dips, the Fed's going to come in and bail them out. And so if all these giant firms, they're just going to, they're, they're never ending hoovering up of assets by, by ways, by means of debt. And no one sees a problem in this besides, I don't understand how there's not a moral outrage from most people when they hear this stuff. And maybe that's just because how corporate America really, you know, they pull the strings on everything in, in mainstream media that you don't really like that should, that would have been in the 1990s. That would have been like a social movement. Like you're not going to buy all of our houses and price us out. Yeah. Now people are just like, it's kind of like the, they shrug it off and then they go back to scrolling on Instagram. You know, they're like, fuck it. I'm not going to wear, I'm not going to own an house anyway. I'm not going to have kids. I'm just here to like get drunk and, you know, have a couple, uh, you know, nights out. They don't think about like the future anymore. That's a really good point. You know, like, yeah, yeah it, it, that seems the, the idea of owning a home just seems so unachievable. And I agree. There is this element of uh, the too big to fail thing has like really crept in. We'll get into this with like this next kind of antitrust story. But uh, mm -hmm. I think. I think it, the last thing that's interesting to call out here is that BlackRock, if you look, if you were to go on Twitter and not actually read the story, you would actually think that BlackRock was the only one doing this 
They have been at the forefront of the entire story in the Wall Street expose that kicked this off. BlackRock is mentioned once amidst a list of other asset managers. So why are they at the forefront of everything? Because I think it's this thing that you've been talking about, which is these mega corporations and the adverse effect of passive is finally moving into the fore. Like, I don't know, there's this great uh, little newsletter thing called Doombert. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Remind me, though. Yeah. I don't know. It's just this, like, newsletter blog type thing, and this guy writes some stuff that's, like, kind of perma-bear doomy stuff, but I like it anyway. I like to yeah. read it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he wrote, he, he had this interesting note that Larry Fink is the de facto energy czar of the U.S. And I just thought that was, like, such a funny way of phrasing it, but it's kind of accurate. Who yeah. has more influence over the energy market of the U.S. and AK, therefore then the world than this guy, Larry Fink? And then you start to ask yourself, should he have that much influence? Why is power concentrated there? And it's because they freaking own everything. Yeah. That's why. And that, that – I think you're seeing everybody just – they're slowly attacking these firms now. And it's – you're getting – it's becoming more mainstream as people start asking these questions. And, and the, the, there's the outrage below the surface, and now that it's getting clicks, and the Wall Street Journal's doing a couple more articles on, on housing and kind of why these big institutions are doing what they're doing. Um, yeah. But that creates that centralization, like George Gilder says, creates essentially like a target on your back. And that's where I think more and more people are going to go after these CEOs for kind of probably like a lot of moral reasons too. I agree. Well, that feeds really well into this next story, which is, I mean, it's just dropped today. I think it's one of the bigger stories uh, of the last couple months. Uh, but Amazon could be forced to split into two companies uh, as antitrust picks up into, into big tech. So basically, House lawmakers are preparing to propose bipartisan legislation that could require Amazon and other technology giants to effectively split into two companies or shed their private label products. So there are multiple bills. Uh, the bill that everyone is talking about, which people said they could be announced uh, today, uh, could mandate structural separation of Amazon and other big tech companies. Uh, Congress has basically been looking in for, into this uh, for the past 15 months. Um, so there's, there's that bill. And then there's another bill uh, that could also be announced today uh, that would target the ability of big technology companies to leverage their online platforms to favor their own products over competitors. So basically the nuance to understand here is that even if a company gets really, really large, there is a, there is a by the book definition of what a monopoly is, right? So basically for long periods of time, people have been trying to summon the political will, but they've also been trying to figure out a way that big, what big tech is doing can fit into the behavior of monopolistic practice so that you can start to bring in antitrust. Mm -hmm. It seems like the avenue that they're pursuing is this practice that everyone does, right? Including like CVS and like distributors. This is a game that everyone's been playing for a really long time, which is, hey, I've got this like marketplace, right? And I facilitate these independent retailers to sell on my platform. But here's the thing. I actually make these products myself. And guess what? When I own the pipes, I can control what goes through them. So. You know, it seems like it. It seems like that's the avenue that these lawmakers have chosen to pursue these companies. So, you know, there are arguably much larger monopolies out there. Google, for sure, is like the most blatant. Google basically is the internet at this point. <laughs> but it seems like because this is the angle that they've chosen, that's why they're going after Amazon first. Or that's at least that's what it seems like. And it's called the Ending Platform Monopolies Act. Um, 
last thing, just and then I'll I'll, I'll let you go off here, but. The, just so people understand, uh, this is actually, it's specifically targeting big technology companies and how they define big tech is that it must have a market cap of 600 billion or more, must have more than 500,000 active monthly users and must be a tr critical trading partner. Right now, only four companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google currently meet those parameters. And it looks like Amazon would be quote unquote, the first to fall here. So what's your take on all this, this antitrust? It's I feel like it's been coming for a while. Um, I think they hid behind the guys, and, and what they did it was really incredible. It re and and I, I will say, like for the pandemic to hit, and we had the ability to have Amazon deliver stuff to our doorsteps is amazing, right? Wow. And there's there's a lot of credit to be given to Jeff Bezos for that, but. What, what I find interesting is more the hypocrisy of, of all these platform companies, which is they are externally like liberal. They like, you know, do no evil um, and obviously like left leaning, yet they were probably the biggest uh, purveyors of, of inequality in terms of capital versus labor. They give you cheap goods, right? And, and therefore they are not a monopoly, but you create this massive gap in financial asset inflation with these platform companies. That's just unprecedented. So you, you actually like by, by externally virtue signaling, like all these great, you know, we're, we're for the people, but created like major, major imbalances in society on the back of it. Um, and that's where I find it very fascinating and ironic that, we might be moving into a world if antitrust breaks up where yes, inf goods will cost more because like these were very scalable products that brought you cheaper goods. And so if you break them up, we'll, we'll pay a little bit more for stuff. It might, it, and I'm actually happy to do that. Like I would rather do that than have like all the power and be ruled by like five companies. Right. And, and know everything yeah. that I'm doing at all times. And I think, that's really what's going on here is people are like, wait, do I want Jeff Bezos and, you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin to know literally every single thing about me? Like, I don't know. And yeah. if, if the price I have to pay is like higher goods, then I'll just adjust my lifestyle. And maybe that's a good thing for society as a whole where, you know, <laughs> you're not constantly consuming like, you know, dumb stuff on Amazon. You know, we don't, in, at the end of the day, this, this is all the really, really cheap goods that get delivered to your door. Maybe that's just like smoking was for our parents where it's like you were creating the same reaction in your brain by pressing buy, 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 buy on all these stupid platforms or on scrolling on Instagram and Facebook as you were like smoking cigarettes. And I think this is just that that's cycle that goes back and forth, right? Yeah. Well, I think what people are starting to kind of, what's also kind of coming to the fore psychologically is the idea that the human experience, it's, it's subjective and it's relative. So you can't really just say, Hey, uh, I am paying less for my goods than I was a little while ago. And like these things, I can do this and I can do that. People, rel people experience like happiness and purpose relative to how other people are doing as well. So even if like everything's cheaper now than it was 20 years ago for the basics, like 
how you go about your life. If you're looking at these people that are making tons of money partying, you're going to be less happy, everything else being equal, than if stuff was just more expensive. And even if you had less, because you feel like everyone is in mm -hmm. the same boat. And people like pick on CPI for exactly that reason. And what you're missing there is that when you have these extreme gaps in income and lifestyle, that people will hold themselves up to, to these standards. And I think like antitrust is a, is a key, key part of what needs to happen here to break up these colossal monopolies. And by the way, when you, when antitrust comes into play, that actually usually creates more shareholder value and it oxygenates the market to borrow Scott Galloway's expression. And it creates more competition. And like, it is a, it's a, it's like the white blood cell of, of capitalism. Uh, and, and you could argue that what we're seeing right now is like not capitalism. That's why the BlackRock story is so just yeah. like kind of gut wrenching at a level. It's just because you, you kind of look at it and you just know it's wrong in some way. Um, and I think like antitrust needs to come back. Uh, that's that's yeah. my take on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And we'll see what, what's actually going to happen. And it's because these companies have so much money. Like they're they're wealthier than when Wall Street had its heyday and they were buying out politicians. So I'm curious to see what really happens here. Does it pass? Because this is the, the also the funny thing was like the biggest donors to like Elizabeth Warren were like the big tech companies. And it's almost like they were like voting with their money to, to break themselves off. Cause she's a big, big tech um, kind of, uh, a cr critic as well. So like, there's a lot of really funky, it's, it's almost what happens when things grow too large is you have lots of hypocrisy, you know? And, and that's, you can't maintain and there's no balance. So like anything you do becomes hypocritical, right? That's yeah, kind of what, what happens. So like you could, you could look at Facebook and Twitter, like when they had that decision to kick off Donald Trump, they were in like the mother of all lose-lose yeah. situations, right? Mother of all lose-lose. And, you know, people are like, hey, you should have kicked him off before. I don't think people who say that are like fully being realistic about the implications of kicking off a sitting U.S. president off of like the main form of communication. I, it's just, I, I agree. I'm like, I'm going to openly say I was like happy, but you know, they, I just don't think you were examining the problem. And that when you really boil that down, that argument down, the problem mm -hmm. is just how big they are. Yeah. It doesn't matter what they do because when you're that big and you're that influential, anything you're going to do is going to be politically bad for you. So I just yeah. think these companies need to get broken up. I guess the bigger question is if they know it's coming, if we know it's coming, what, what actually happens to the capital markets? Because if they spin off, and maybe everything stays copacetic and like the market caps, you know, they can start competing against each other and whatever, or does, do they spin off? And that takes away all the benefits they had of her centralized platform of data and creates like, I don't know, I mean, they're the biggest weights in all the, the S and P and NASDAQ. They could bring everything down. So so one interesting analogy, and I would get ready for this, and Facebook's already been talking about this, but basically the argument is going to come to the fore that they're going to look at China and they're going to say, look at their tech companies. They get help from the government and they're way bigger than the U.S. tech companies and they do way more and yada, yada. And these guys like Zuckerberg's going to get up there and probably Tim Cook and all these guys are going to get up and say, hey, 
if you don't empower us to be as big as we possibly can be, China is going to eat our lunch. And the analogy to that is in the 80s, it was the same exact situation with Japan. And honestly, you can go back and look and all this stuff, like China's the boogeyman. It used to be Japan. Everyone was worried about Japan. They were going to come up and eat our lunch. They were younger. They were hungrier. Yeah. Their tech was better. They were like, is this a better way of, of life? And basically, Japan also had a very centrally planned economy. And essentially, at a time when the U.S. was in what felt like really, really intense competition for hegemony with another power, the U.S. actually moved, steered harder into, uh, into antitrust back then. And they broke up. That was around the time that they broke up these telecom monopolies. And it was really, honestly, it was a test of free markets versus centrally planned economies. And that is, it sucks because that, it, it feels risky, right? It feels risky. You're like, is it going to work? Yeah. They need to do it. They need to do it. I'm with you. I'm with you. That's really fascinating uh, juxtaposition there. And I, I completely agree. I, yeah. But look what happened to Japan right after that. It imploded with debt, right? <laughs> right. So it's almost like you have to you have to make these political decisions. In the, <laughs> that's what's funny about the market right now is it really is just a giant political decision. All right. Last, last big story to get into here. And it's been done a lot. So I want to make sure that we're actually adding value to everyone who's listening. But El Salvador has become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. So uh, on back on Wednesday, El Salvador actually passed a new law uh, that would make the small Central American country the world's first to deem Bitcoin legal tender, uh, a move that analysts say uh, risks putting its economy at the mercy of digital currency sharp uh, swings. Uh, the designation allows Bitcoin uh, to be used to buy goods and pay taxes and bank loans, essentially. Uh, and, and critically, businesses would be required to accept Bitcoin for payment uh, with the Bitcoin dollar exchange rate set by the market. So there are like a couple angles to kind of look at here. Um, so uh, one is uh, kind of the definition of legal tender, which has been subject to a lot of debate uh, online. Uh, two, El Salvador's status as a tax haven. Three, the IMS reaction. Uh, and then I'm going to throw another one in there, which is the volcano meme, uh, which is, you've been seeing on, on Twitter. And honestly, it's like goofy, but like I actually think it's it's significant. So just getting into the definition of legal tender, I'll take this one. Then I want you to talk about the, the tax uh, haven. Um, basically, legal tender, there's been a lot of people kind of pushing back and even folks in the Bitcoin community saying, hey, look, it's all well and good. This is like a great step. No one should be mandated to take Bitcoin, right? That's like one step too far. And then folks, uh, including myself, I was like, well, the definition of legal tender is that you have to accept it, right? If, if it's just an option, then that's not actually legal tender. And mm -hmm. it looks like the real definition is that it actually comes to um, being like a court of law. So legal tender is defined as a form of money that courts of law are required to recognize a satisfactory payment for any monetary debt. Some jurisdictions allow contract law to overrule the status of legal tender, allowing, for example, merchants to specify that they will not accept uh, cash as payments. And you've actually seen that in the U.S. Like I live in Williamsburg. Lots of merchants are like, no, we don't take cash. We won't take $50 bills. And I was always in my head thinking, that's illegal, sir. I know the definition of legal tender. Turns out <laughs> that they're very much in the right and I was in the wrong. So I guess there is like a, a pretty valid question about whether or not it's ethical uh, for the president of El Salvador to mandate that businesses accept Bitcoin, because honestly, there are some pretty good reasons why you wouldn't want to. So we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see how that all plays out. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about, uh, you called this out like right after the news, uh, actually, actually got announced that basically what this means is that this is kind of, it makes, uh, El Salvador kind of a, uh, 
tax haven, uh, you know, yeah. a capital gains tax. Haven. That's, and this, this is just, it's kind of like when Ireland set their corporate tax rate at 15% and that created all these like reverse mergers and people re putting their headquarters to get tax benefits elsewhere. If the more globalized the economy is, the more arbitrages there are between like tax shelters. And that's where this is really interesting because like if, if one is taxed at, you know, capital gains tax to Bitcoin in the U S but it's zero in El Salvador, you know, that creates pressure. If more money and more and more money heads over to El Salvador, that creates pricing pressure on the U.S.'s ability to tax that asset, right? And that's the this is the end game of all this. Um, the beginning of the end game, I should say, because it's still El Salvador. It's a very small country, but like if more and more countries adopt this, and they're trying to they're really trying to steal economic value by creating a free market. That's what's happening. And it takes the power away from legislatures to tax their, their citizens when it happens at the, the country level. So maybe it's El Salvador, then it's Paraguay, then it's Argentina, and then it's Brazil. Like imagine if this happened at Brazil. Like that's a country of, I don't know, a hundred some million people. Like that's a, that's a big, big, you know, step. So if legal tender bitcoins becomes legal tender and those dominoes start falling it's going to create how do you tax your your citizens like these are the the things five years from now ten years from now if it keeps growing causes major major pressure on sovereigns especially when they have so much debt and they can't get out of their own problems so those are right. the, the, the bigger cycles um, down the line. And I know El Salvador is small and everyone's like, whatever, it's El Salvador. There's lots of problems there. There's crime. There's, you know, massive gaps in all these countries from, you know, the people at the top versus the, the workers. Um, so it's going to be a really interesting case study to watch from that perspective. Agreed. I think it's kind of a cheap shot. I, I just, when people are like, oh, it's El Salvador, it doesn't matter. Well, what did you expect? It was going to start with the United States. Like, that's just not how these things yeah. work, you know? And if like, you're waiting for, oh, the, you know, once the United States accepts it, then I, then you're just going to, I don't know. There's not much to say there because that's by the time that happens, if it does happen, which I think is a colossal, if, um, you're just going to be waiting. No opportunity is going to be left basically. And the, you know, the last thing I think to, to close on here is, uh, you know, the IMF, they basically come out and said, whoa, 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 this doesn't seem like such a good idea. And, you know, I wonder, and like, I would connect the dots here and Elizabeth Warren came out and said, hey, we really don't like this. Uh, you know, this Bitcoin doesn't seem like a good idea anymore. And, you know, someone came out, I think it might've been Kyle Davies of Three Hours Capital. He's like, look, Elizabeth Warren isn't trying to think critically. Like, what is what are my real opinions about this? And like, put out something thoughtful based on saying, she is a politician and politicians are supposed to gauge what they think their, you know, constituents think and then represent that yeah. viewpoint. So she's not out here trying to like think critically about the whole thing. She's trying to like assess what the people who vote for her thinks and then implement that and, and, and advocate for it. So I think that's the big you know, problem with politics right now is like no one, maybe the, 
I mean, you could say the citizens just don't care and they're so like desensitized by this whole power game that she can just decide what she wants on her own. But like, you know, it seems like she's, she's got her own agenda. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's like Gandhi's thing, right? Of, uh, stages of acceptance. It's like, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And I mean, these are signs that we've certainly been ignored, certainly been laughed at. Uh, I'd say laughter is the primary. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's starting to look like there will be signs of fight. Uh, I think that will be the mother of all dip buying opportunities when, um, you know, a major country makes Bitcoin illegal. Like, that will be the mother of all well, uh, dip buying opportunities. China, right? Like, they, they met Bitcoin. Oh, they're illegal. always making it illegal. They're always making it illegal yeah, over there. This one, yeah. I think, is real because of the, there's, like, real inflation there. So now they're like, crap, yeah. like, uh, what do we do? Um, you know what else we I do is fascinating? And I got it mm-hmm. is your the name of El Salvador translated is the savior, right? These are kind of cheesy, cheesy, but like in history, if you look at like Bernie Madoff, he made off with the money, you know, like they're like little hints. I swear to God, this is where we're living in a simulation in, in a name of, of things that signify like lots of historical turning points. So I'm keeping that one in my back pocket. Tyler, I love it when you bring science into the discussion. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see. You'll see. There's too much beta anyway, you know. Yeah. More people got to, you know, what's that quote? It's like uh, uh, millionaires use data and and billionaires use astrology. (laughs) That's a great quote and probably (laughs) deeply accurate. All right, we kind of got to leave it there, unfortunately, because you and I got to run to this other call. But I know usually uh, everyone here tunes in for these little snippets into Tyler and my personal lives. None of that this week. Unfortunately, we just got to leave you. Um, Life's boring. But that's why why we keep you coming back, baby. (laughs) All right, man, this has been fun. I'll see you next week. See you, man. Take care.